0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life, Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where I have the great privilege and the great honor to journey with you in a study and some reflections on theology of the body. We have been in the work Fill These Hearts, a book authored by Christopher West, which is a series of reflections on theology of the body. And we are in section two that has us focusing on that one word, design how we come to a better understanding of who we are in light of being created in the image and likeness of God, both male and female. So we are in this chapter now that is about a return to the beginning, huh? So what I would like to do is just pick up where we left off with St. Augustine, where St. Augustine reveals to us that the deepest desire of our hearts is to see another and be seen by that other's loving look, huh? This deep seeing of the other and how it sums up well the experience of nakedness without shame. In short, how nakedness without shame reveals that in the beginning, human desire, eros, was aligned with the divine design to love as God loves. Now my dear friends, you and I both know that (laughs) This peaceful, vulnerable exposure is the first thing that was lost when sin entered the picture. What do we read in Genesis 3, 7 and following? Then the eyes of both were what opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And the man says, what? In verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, John Paul II calls this the second discovery of sex, and it differs radically from the first one. How? Well, in the first discovery of sex, if you will, eros was inspired or embreathed with what? Divine life and love, which is to say it was intended to express innately agape. This is why the first man and woman were naked without shame heroes expressed perfect love without any taint of selfishness and there is no fear in perfect love because as 1 john 4:18 reminds us perfect love casts out all fear christopher west in reflecting upon this says we need to let this sink in and we do we need to let this sink in god designed sexual desire in the beginning To be the very power to love in his image. To be the very power to fulfill the essential meaning of our existence. Think about that. My dear friends, this meaning of our existence, which is to participate in the life and love of God. This means the call to love as God loves is written in the very design of our bodies as male and female. How many times have we said it? A man's body makes no sense by itself. A woman's body makes no sense by itself. But together, as male and female, our bodies reveal what a great mystery. Because they tell the story of infinite life-giving love. Or at least... (laughs) we can say they are meant to tell that story. Now, God had warned the first man and woman that if they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would breathe out his life and love or expire. Lured and enticed by the desire for satisfaction, what did they do? They took the fruit and ate it. And from that moment on, as Genesis tells the story, their bodies began to tell a different story. From that moment on, human desire was misaligned with the divine design. And as Christopher West reminds us beautifully, the result was the original story of freedom, love, and nakedness was warped into a story of enslavement, lust, and fig leaves. Now here, there's an important point to really stay with, huh? The instinct we experience to cover our bodies in our fallen world actually comes from a desire to protect the original truth and goodness of the body. This is a huge point for John Paul II in his own reflections on theology of the body. That we cover our bodies not because they're bad, huh? We've talked about that a great deal. That's a heresy. We cover our bodies precisely because they're so good. And we feel an instinctive need to protect the goodness of our bodies from the degradation of lust, huh? Huh? Shame entered only when lust entered. This is why modesty is so important, my friends, Because in modesty, we invite the eyes not to lust, but to love, because modesty is an invitation to love and not lust. huh? It's not so much that uh, lust entered, as if lust already existed somewhere and it finally landed upon them. No. Lust, which is that self-centered and self-seeking erotic desire was all that was left of Eros when the human heart expired agape or breathed out agape. Think about that critically for a second. This was not the original plan. The plan for you and I, my dear fans, is so much greater. Lust then is it's an empty shell, a tragic and terrible reduction of the fullness of love that is meant to be there and was there in the beginning. By pointing us back to our original desires, remember how we've talked about purity and the purity that invades our souls. God's redemption is about restoring us to the purity of our origins. Christ does this that it might awaken hope within us. Remember back in uh, chapter 5, we were talking about the living hope of satisfaction and christopher west was reflecting into uh, shawshank redemption i thought there was just some real gems there and he was talking about that scene i want to go back to this a little bit where andy knowing full well it will cost him a time in solitary confinement locks himself in the warden's office and plays a piece from mozart's the marriage of figaro over the pa system For everyone in the prison to hear. And what do we remember from that scene? I know many of us have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. What do we remember? That hardened criminals stopped in their tracks because they were pierced by beauty. Andy reclines in bliss at the warden's desk. And as Red observes, for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. And go back to that scene because as it continues, what do we remember? But maybe the enraged warden banging on the door and yelling through the glass at and Andy to turn it off. Andy motions as if to follow the order, then pauses briefly to weigh a decision, knowing full well he'll get even more time the whole for what he's about to do. He looks the warden straight in the eye and turns the volume up. That's what we can call a holy defiance that willingness to suffer greatly for the sake of beauty. And then the next scene, we see Andy returning to the lunch table after an extended time in solitary confinement. And what follows is so important, huh? One of his buddies asks Andy if his little stunt was worth two weeks in the hole. And Andy says it's the easiest time he ever did because Mozart kept him company. That's the beauty of music, Andy said he would go on. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? Why? Because it brings us back to the origin of who we are. It restores the virtue of hope. And this is why we need the music of the beginning to resound in our hearts. Just as Andy carried Mozart within him, so too we carry the music of God's original design deeply in our hearts. That music which is imprinted there like a primordial muscle memory. And just like the men in Shawshank State Prison, we need this music so that we don't forget. Forget what? Forget that there are places in our hearts that aren't made of stone. That there are places in our hearts that long for love as it once was. Places in our hearts that are capable of receiving that love and sharing it with others. Media friends, we need to be reminded that freedom is possible, although seeking it will take every bit as much patience and effort as Andy exerted in that movie of carving little by little through that prison wall. Media friends, we are not who the pornified media tell us we are. huh? We live in a porn culture, but we have something inside of us that can overcome it and that is the grace and purity of Jesus Christ, who has restored us to the purity of our origins. We are not valuable only if we can attract and arouse another's lust. In fact, as we have spoken to it in the past, lust devalues us by reducing us to the level of a thing to be used and discarded. Remember John Paul II's great, great quote, people are made to be loved, things use, we love things, use people. That's the problem. Our true value, our true worth and dignity comes from the very fact that we have been chosen by love and for love. And that love is an utterly gratuitous and free gift. We have been chosen to participate in infinite love, right? What does that word participate mean again? Participatio, break that word up, part. We have a Part to play, right? We have a part to play in God's infinite love, and this love is without measure, in ecstasy and bliss beyond imagining. This is what we desire. This is what we are designed and destined for. Somehow we know it, and this love is ours if we only open ourselves up to it and receive this gift. But my dear friends, we have to trust in God's loving design. Do we not hear Christopher West transitions to this word as he starts New Chapter, Chapter 9, trusting God's design? And what does he say here that is so important for us? That the desire for infinity that haunts our humanity makes us all beggars. No creature can satisfy his own desires. No creature can provide himself with the living water for which he thirsts. This places us all in a position of radical dependence upon the infinite one to grant us the gift of his own infinity. And we ask the question, will he? I mean, this really is the test of faith that God placed before us when According to the rich, rich symbolism of biblical language, he asked our first parents not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is it that the first beatitude, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is hinged to being poor in spirit, is hinged to being poor in God? What does that word mean? Spirit? penuma breath, lung. We are to long for God the same way our lungs long for air. What does he say later in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not be anxious. Do not worry. That Greek translates, do not be preoccupied. But know, trust in me. And if you long for God with your very being and everything that you do, you will come to understand that that act and virtue of trust is the most concrete expression of faithfulness that will lead you down the path of holiness. So trust is very important. So why does God ask our first parents not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, what's going on here? Does God really have our best interests in mind? Or is God holding out on us? As Christopher West notes, This really is the essence of this chapter. How this original commandment is an invitation to trust in God's loving design. He wants to feed us. He wants to satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. And the simple question is, do we believe he will? I have spoken a great deal about how we think about coincidence. There's no such thing because all is God incident. And in light of God's divine providence and sovereign love, he uses anything and everything to achieve the fullness of his great plan. We have been given the gift of freedom because it is innate to love. And yet, even when we choose against him, he uses that to his advantage. Again, think about the crucifix itself. The most horrific event in all of history became the greatest event in all of history. Oh, happy fault, we cry for good reason. So it is certainly no coincidence that the symbolism surrounding the original sin is that of eating. Eve's attraction to the fruit implies that she was what? Hungry, right? Hungry as this work fill these hearts has been exploring. Hunger is a basic human condition. According to the biblical narrative, Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was, what do we read in Genesis 3, 6? It was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Eve was not mistaken in finding the fruit good and desirable. God made this tree and placed it in the garden for a reason, right? Everything he made was good. Why then were they not to eat of it? Why then were they not to taste in what is good? Well, Christopher West gets into this question. He says, quite simply, the serpent's incriminating insinuation enters right here in that all-important question. Did God really say not to eat from that tree? As if to say, aren't you hungry? And doesn't that fruit look so good? And I love this line from Christopher West. What kind of killjoy is this God of yours anyway? In other words, what kind of God would give you this gnawing hunger inside dangle this delicious fruit right in front of your face, and then forbid you to eat it. Hmm. You know, Christopher West turns his attention to uh, the movie The Devil's Advocate, a movie where Al Pacino gives voice to Satan. And there's one particular scene where Al Pacino gives voice to Satan's proverbial pronouncement on God as follows. He says, let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, but don't swallow. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that? Never. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. Now, are we to conclude that God didn't ever want us to eat of this tree? We know God wants us to have a knowledge of good and evil, but He doesn't want us to grasp at that knowledge on our own terms, apart from Him. That's the key, huh? He doesn't want us to invent good and evil for ourselves. Thus, as the Catechism reminds us in paragraph 397, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolically evokes the insurmountable limits that man, being a creature, must freely recognize and respect with trust. Okay, so trust. Again, this is the operative word here. With the first sin, man, let his trust in his creator die in his heart. By asking us not to take the fruit God was simply inviting us into a relationship of trust. What do we see in the narrative of Abraham? Trust. We say obedience, but what does the word obedience mean? Obadire, to listen. Abraham was a chieftain of obedience because he was one who trusted. He listened to God. He had a relationship with God, and so he was obedient to God. So by asking us not to take the fruit, God was inviting us into a relationship of trust, trust that he would grant us as a gift from his hands, the food we craved. In other words, he was inviting us to keep our hunger open before him, huh? believing that he would grant us the desires of our hearts. If we had remained in the position of dependence before God, We could have, as Saint Louis de Montfort reminds us, fed without fear of death on the delicious fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do we read in Psalm 81? I, the Lord, am your God. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. Ah, but my people did not heed my voice, so I left them in their hardness, in their hardness of heart, to follow their own designs. In that Psalm, chapter 81, verses 10 to 12, We have pride at its root. We don't trust in God's designs, so we simply choose to follow our own. We don't trust in God's designs, so we choose to follow our own. That's the fall in the Garden of Eden. As one Lorenzo Abacete penned, There is only one temptation. All particular temptations are expressions of this one original or primordial temptation. It is the temptation to believe that the fulfillment of the desires of the human heart depends entirely on who? God know us. Why is grace the great gift of the new covenant, my dear friends? Because it is the gift that allows us to share in the mystery of our relationship with God and certainly the gift given to us as something that will aid us in that most concrete act and virtue of trust. Self-dependency, self-reliance. This is the deception that humanity came to believe because of the cunning of the serpent. That God has no intention of providing for the satisfaction of our hunger. Huh? I mean, believing that, we have only two choices. This is what kind of comes out in Al Bacino's words. Starve or take satisfaction into our own hands. And if these are the only two choices, what do you think we're going to choose? This is the wisdom of John Paul II. This is the wisdom certainly of Christopher West and stuff that we are made to contemplate, made to ponder, huh? to discern, to better understand. Now, all that being said, what if you're doing the same and it ends up that you are taking what I want or I'm taking what you want? When we live within the deception that there is no divine gift in which we all participate, that there's no satisfaction for our desires apart from what we take for ourselves, then as, uh, as Christopher West reminds us, it's simply a dog-eat-dog world out there and only conflict and chaos can reign. You know, it's fascinating, as a father, I constantly see my children in conflict, pulling and grabbing at things that they want, and in a microcosm, that deception of self-reliance is the fool's gold of all of history. All they had to do was ask their dad, hey dad, can you help me out with this? Hey dad, can you show me what I need to do here? Hey dad, so on and so forth. No. They grab at this and they grab at that and they begin to grab at the same thing. And where does it lead but chaos? Chaos. They don't listen to their dad. They're disobedient to their dad and it leads to chaos. And is not sin itself disobedience? It is not sin, is not sin itself no more than disobedience to God the Father, Yes, we have very technical definitions of sin, but simply put, sin is breaking our Father's heart when we are disobedient to His desires. Sin always testifies to our yearning for satisfaction, but not accepting the way to that satisfaction, the way of complete dependence on God as our Father. Looking at the world with all its bitter sorrows and sufferings, It's easy to wonder if God really has a loving plan for our happiness and fulfillment. To call God Father with a sincere heart is to recognize him as the ultimate origin of every good gift and to rest in his benevolent providence, trusting unflinchingly, despite life's many sorrows and sufferings, that God does indeed have a perfect plan for our satisfaction. To call God Father is to believe wholeheartedly that in due time, in due time, He will provide precisely that for which we ache. What does the psalmist write in chapter 145, verses 15 to 16? You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. My dear friends, Could we not say that it's that due time part that makes us particularly nervous, huh? The root word to patience, it's an Akkadian root, literally means to endure, to suffer. Patience perfects all things because God calls us to suffer the ache, to continue to trust and refuse to grasp at that false sense of satisfaction. In other words, My dear friends, we must stay in our poverty. We must remain in the posture of the open bride who awaits the coming of the bridegroom with that sense of joyful expectation. Amen. How about Psalm 27, 14? Wait for the Lord with courage. Be stout-hearted and wait for the Lord. Let us recall that faith in its deepest essence is the openness of the human heart to God's gift. Sin, in its deepest essence, is the opposite of faith because it closes ourselves off to God's fatherhood. John Paul II says this is truly the key for interpreting reality. Original sin is not only the violation of a positive command of God. Original sin attempts then to abolish fatherhood destroying its rays which permeate the created world placing in doubt the truth about god who is love and leaving man only with a sense of the master-slave relationship striking in turn man feels goaded to do battle against god and driven to take sides against the master who keeps him enslaved wow that's from john paul ii's work crossing the threshold of hope Beautiful. So, what is going on here? When we come to see God or think about God as a tyrant, the last thing we want to do is remain receptive before Him, huh? You see, that makes us too vulnerable. We still want divine life, but not in such a way that we have to be dependent on God to give it to us. Christopher West has a beautiful, quotable quote here We want to be like God, but without God. Huh? And what do we call this? Well, simply pride. Pride. And so what is our response to God in light of this pride? Well, stay tuned for next week. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was, the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth